Imagine if you could sit down at your desk in the morning, piping hot coffee in hand, you could pop open your laptop, double click on a document on your desktop that says life plan, so you could check on what's happening this week, this month, or even this year. Well, I wanna help you create that plan. Let's spend five days together making a roadmap for your future so that you can live all the rest of your days on purpose. Yes, you can own the future that's coming your way. The five-day Own Your Future Challenge is absolutely free to join, and I've got a spot with your name on it. Don't let another week, month, year, or even decade pass you by without owning the vision for who you want to become and the impact you want to make while you're alive. This is five free days of learning from incredible world leaders, helping you to uncover who you truly are and leading you to craft a roadmap and set goals aligned with the future meant for you. This is important. Join me and other amazing global leaders and experts to help you own your future starting May 11th. You can join right now for free at jennaschallenge.com. That's jennaschallenge.com for the five-day Own Your Future Challenge. I can't wait to see you there. You're listening to The Gold Digger Podcast, episode 130. Today, I get to introduce you to an incredible woman, Beth Kirby of Local Milk Blog. Now, Beth is a photographer, a cook, a teacher, a mother, and the lady boss behind the curtain at Local Milk, which is an award-winning food, travel, and lifestyle blog. She's currently working on her first cookbook, and when she's not in the kitchen, she spends her time teaching other creative entrepreneurs how to tell beautiful visual stories, how to harness the power of social media. You guys, this girl has almost 800,000 Instagram followers and turned their passions into a living through e-courses, workshops, and retreats all over the world from Japan to Paris. Her passion is helping people eat well, live well, and work well, and do it all with mindfulness, ambition, and joy. I have always dreamed of having Beth on Gold Digger ever since I came across her work. She is an absolute game changer in the social media world and her images, her content and messages are truly so rare and she cranks out beautiful, meaningful content and images daily. It's truly amazing, which is why I could not resist inviting her on so that I could pick her brilliant brain of all things photography, styling and curating. And here's the thing. When you look at her feed, you would never guess the story that she can tell, a story of mental illness and feeling lost and flunking out of school and running away. And there is so much honesty in Beth's story. And I think that it gives her work so much more emotion. And I'm just so excited to introduce her to you. Before we dive on in, I want to share our review of the week from Amanda Acosta. Amanda says, this is a serious breath of fresh air. Jenna is an absolute gem. And I have no doubt that this podcast would be the bomb.com. Seriously, I went on a road trip and binged on all the episodes. Love, love, love. Thank you so much, Amanda, for taking the time to leave a review. I literally listen and read all of your reviews every single week, and they mean so much to me. They also help get incredible people like Beth on the show. So if you love the show, if you've learned anything, if you've taken anything away from all of these episodes that we put out every single week, would you just take a few seconds to leave a review today? It would sincerely make my day. Now, without further ado, I cannot wait to introduce you to the incredible woman that is Beth Kirby. 
You're listening to the Gold Digger Podcast, where we firmly believe that work doesn't have to feel like work. Self-made millionaire and marketing guru Jenna Kutcher will help you redefine what success looks like. It's time to hear from the experts, listen in on honest conversations, and learn the best tips and tricks that helped others pave their own way and craft their dream career. If you're ready to dig in, do the work, and tackle your biggest goals, you're in the right place. Here's your host, educator, photographer, and mac and cheese lover, Jenna Kutcher. Yo, 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 it is Jenna here, and usually this is the point of the show where podcast hosts talk for a solid 5, 10, even 15 minutes about some product that you need to purchase or some coupon code, and maybe you're like me and you just fast forward through it to get to the actual content. But fear not, you don't have to do that here. I dropped all of my sponsors in an attempt to get back to why I started this whole thing in the first place, which is to bring you the best free education twice a week. So today's show isn't brought to you by a paid sponsor. It's brought to you by my free Instagram guide, Captions That Convert. That's right. I made a totally free guide dissecting captions that don't just get likes and comments, but captions that actually convert your followers into clients. Because what good is that number under your name if it's not showing you results in your bank account? So grab this free resource and more at jkinsta.com. That's right. We all love free. So hop on over to JK Insta and up level your Instagram game in no time. Hey, Beth, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. You guys, when I was introduced to Beth's stuff, I literally said swear words because it is so stinking beautiful. And I was kind of angry at the world that I hadn't heard of her sooner. So, you know, catch 22. But Beth, can you kind of walk us through your whole journey of where you started, how you landed to where you are today and what that process looked like? Sure. So for anyone who hasn't met me, my name is Beth. I'm a photographer and a cook and a stylist, and I'm writing my first cookbook this year. And I'm sort of the lady behind the curtain at large at Local Milk, which is my food, travel, and lifestyle brand that started as a blog. And currently, I'm a hat lady, like literally and figuratively. (laughs) I wear a lot of hats. I I'm obsessed with minimalism. And then I go and buy like six berets in different colors. (laughs) And that really is analogous to my professional life. I do a lot of different things. We also host these retreats all over the world where I teach both visual storytelling and creative business to other entrepreneurs who want to start something of their own, which is so funny because we're this year we're trying to transition it to online. And I've been traveling around the world teaching for so long in person and never really thought, even though I'm a blogger, to put any of that information (laughs) online. But I definitely took the scenic route to where I am now. My path was not the linear, direct, graduate from high school, go to college. You know, people are like, did you study photography in college? No, I did not. Did you go to culinary school? No, I did not. (laughs) I did go to college off and on. And I studied philosophy, which uh, has absolutely no direct bearing on what I do now. But yeah, I didn't go to college and then, you know, get a great internship and then get a job and get experience and then start this. 
that would have maybe been a much easier path. But mine was, well, for one, I was, we'll like start, we'll begin at the beginning. (laughs) I was a relatively happy, quiet child. And then something happened when I turned 13. I think it was like with the onset of puberty. I don't know. Like I started to get more depressed, maybe more creative too, but I I got a little darker and that could have been like the social shift of high school and I guess junior high being different. I don't actually know everything that precipitated it, but I know around the beginning of junior high, I got a little off, but I was still okay. But then I would say by the time I hit 17, I was probably already in what I would consider full-blown bipolar, but I didn't know it, and I wouldn't know it for many, many years. So I was living with a mental illness without knowing it, which is a train wreck. So at 17, I ran away from home, like, randomly. One night, I just did not come home, and I drove to New Orleans, where I'd never been before. Um, and I'm 17. I've got my textbook still in my trunk. I don't know what I'm doing. I have like a gas card and a few dollars to my name. And I just like roll up on Bourbon Street and jump out of my car. And I'm like, okay, I'm here. And I floated around in that world for a few weeks, looked for jobs, took some colorful jobs. And then I felt really bad for my mom because the only person I would talk to is my best friend. And he told me how sad my mom was. And in my crazy, disconnected, manic brain, I hadn't even thought about her. I wasn't like, screw you, mom. I was mm-hmm. like, it just didn't occur to me. So I was like, oh, well, mom's sad. <laughs> I'll come home now. So I came back, you know. I had a really loving, supportive family. You know, we had our issues in high school, but I don't think anything that's out of the ordinary. So I came home and I immediately moved out. And I my high school, which was a private all-girls school, which like should have completely kicked me out. For some reason, they didn't kick me out. So of course, I dropped out. I was like, oh, this wonderful opportunity has been given to me to not be kicked out of high school. How about I just bail? So I dropped out of high school and I got my GED, good enough degree, is the joke. But I actually ended up going to college early. So that year I dropped out, I was like, oh, well, I guess I should just go to college now. So what would have been the second semester of my senior year, I went to college. But I was crazy. So I failed out of college. (laughs) I didn't show up at all. And I still had this New Orleans thing from having run away to New Orleans. And I kind of had this fantasy in my mind. So I got a medical withdrawal. So it didn't look like I'd failed out. But you know, I guess in retrospect, it really was medical because I was suffering from this illness I didn't know I had. But anyway, I got into a school in New Orleans, Loyola, and I transferred there and I moved there. And I was just like a normal college freshman, just as if I graduated. But of course, I think for a creative person with bipolar, like New Orleans at the age of 18 is not where you're going to get your head on straight. Mm-hmm. So I went down and failed out of college again. I was put on academic suspension, which meant I couldn't attend school for like a year, I think, two semesters. But then they would let me come back. So I was a cocktail waitress at a jazz club called the Funky Butt. (laughs) Um, And I was a barista and I played a lot of GameCube at our house. I lived with five guys, four of whom were named Andrew. 
and one Zach. And it was just sort of this, you know, lost year. But when I got the opportunity to go back, I was super motivated and I made a 4.0 and I was killing it. And this was that bipolar cycle that I didn't know was a thing. So my house would be immaculate. I would take 18 hours a semester, which for me was a lot. I'd make a 4.0. I was, you know, going to conferences with my professors, but then I'd start to go faster and faster. And my like late night study sessions would morph into late night party sessions, which then fueled early morning study sessions. (laughs) And then, you know, it was insane. And of course I quit again. And then Hurricane Katrina happened and that kind of like washed me out of New Orleans. And I spent some time in Europe. I would come back to my hometown. I met the wrong guy during a hurricane evacuation and he turned me on to really hard drugs. So here I am, bipolar, undiagnosed. And my life by my early 20s, I, you know, was really, really, really in a lot of danger. And I remember I showed up in a doctor's office, like crying and like, something's wrong with me. What's wrong with me? This can't be normal. Am I just a terrible person? And they had me take the test and they were like, dear God, you're so bipolar. And I was like, it was a relief, Mm -hmm. but it was such a relief that I think a lot of people who struggle with mental illness will, this will resonate with them. You feel like it's a cop out. It's hard to believe that it's not your fault and you feel like you're just making excuses for yourself. But the great thing is once I got a treatment plan, which for me is like very minimal medication and a lot of healthy lifestyle, good sleep, good eating. I just started exercising again. That really helps. But, you know, having that good treatment program, all the things I thought were character defects, like I thought I was kind of easy. I thought I, you know, was a drug addict. And honestly, you know, that happened, but I think it happened because of the mental illness and it was just all self-medicating. So fast forward, this is like a decade of my life from 17 years old to 28. So at 28, I got married somewhere in that whirlwind to actually a really nice guy, but he was as messed up as I was at the time. I never thought I didn't want to get married. He proposed to me in front of a jukebox at our favorite bar to Molly Hatchett's flirting with disaster. I kid you not. So that ended the way you would expect in divorce. But my divorce really, even though we both wanted it, it, it's really upsetting. So I like ran off to California with a pair of motorcycle boots, some cutoff Levi's and that was it. And like Mm -hmm. a few hundred dollars in cash, like wadded up in my purse. And I basically attempted to drink myself to death that year. I think I just was really, really everything that the bipolar had made look fun. Like I go to rock and roll shows and I party like it wasn't, nothing was fun. I was crazy. Nothing was working. And I finally ended up in a treatment facility when I was 28 for the second time, actually. (laughs) The first time was a really fancy one that had horses. This one did not have any horses, but it worked. It worked. And it got me to a place where I got over my own BS. I was obsessed with being cool in my 20s, which is so stupid. I didn't know it. I didn't think it consciously. But looking back, it was all about records and how I dressed. 
and I was such a loser. <laughs> Not that I was, you know, I don't think I would look at anyone else and say that. I would say, actually, you're a hurting, struggling person. But, you know, when I look at me, it's hard to extend that same. And also, I just kind of want to smack myself because I was so snobby and so dysfunctional. <laughs> and in treatment, I like let all of that go. The need to be right but also a lot of the really defeating beliefs I had about the universe, I let go. I was able to allow myself to believe things that work. Mm-hmm. So for me to believe that everything happens for a reason is a belief that really works because it helps me manifest things in my life. It helps me look for the reason, create the reason. Maybe there's a bigger reason that I don't have anything to do with. Mm-hmm. But for me, it doesn't matter whether it's God or simply my attitude shaping reality, I know when I believe in that purpose and that path that it kind of unfolds before me. But like if I get stuck at a traffic light, if I don't believe that, I'm like, oh, you know, so stressed out and I got to get there. And instead, I'm like, well, if I wasn't stuck at this traffic light, who knows what would happen in my life? Mm -hmm. So I just look at everything as guiding me, even perceived inconveniences, struggles, hardship, pain, like that whole decade of my life. I mean, people are like, you know, would you change it? Absolutely not. Because I'm in a unique position to actually speak to people who've been through that. I can help people. And also it made me who I am for better or worse. And I like me now. So I wouldn't change it. And I wouldn't have met my now husband or have my daughter or have this amazing career that I love If I hadn't taken this path, it's crazy, but it's true. So basically a year into that new life where I wasn't using drugs and I was like sleeping at nighttime and waking up in the daytime and taking showers more anyway (laughs) than I was. You know, it was just I had to learn to live again. I had never been a normal functioning adult. That had never happened. So I did a lot of yoga, but then I thought, well, what am I going to do? So I did what everyone I think does need. I was like, I guess I'll go back to school. So I went back to school to study philosophy and I was taking some creative writing classes because I always really enjoyed that. And I was sitting on my therapist couch and, you know, having conversations that one has with one's therapist where she was like, well, what do you want to do with your life? And I was like, Well, because I have always been a huge internet person. Like I had my first website when I was 13 years old. It was a Star Wars fan page. (laughs) I taught myself HTML and I wrote it myself. I had a fashion blog. Don't look for it. You're not going to find it. (laughs) So I've always been, and you know, I love video games. I'm just, I'm a computer nerd by nature, but I, and I also love cooking and food. So of course I was following a lot of food blogs at the time. This is 2012 when she asked me. And I remember seeing this one blogger in particular. Her name is Aran Goyaga. I think I'm pronouncing her last name right. And I saw her, you know, traveling the world and she was teaching people food photography in Spain and France. And I was like, and she was, I think, releasing a book. I don't know if it was at the time, but I know eventually she did. But I was looking at that and the wheels are turning in my brain. I'm like, dude, this is her job. (laughs) And, you know, and that's part of what allowed me to do this was someone else was out there doing it. I could observe it and it let me know it was possible. That's all I needed to know was that it was possible. And I hope that I can do the same thing now for other people, especially people who think maybe they have like 
no hope or insurmountable problems. Cause I like to say, you know, a lot of people struggle with motivation or finding time. I'm like, well, you know, you're not like shooting up in your bedroom on a Tuesday, mm-hmm. <laughs> but even that, you know, like it is crazy how far you can come and what you can do when your beliefs change. So I realized it was possible. And I told her, I want to do that. And she goes, well, why don't you do that? And I said, okay, I'll do that. I literally dropped out of school that day again for like the bonk zillionth time. It was therapist approved. So I felt like that was cool. My therapist was like, yeah, drop out of school. I mean, I was 28. Come on. (laughs) And I was studying philosophy. She's like, do you want to teach philosophy? I was like, no. She's like, do you want to be a lawyer? I was like, "Mm, mm, mm." (laughs) she's like, well, it may not be really taking you where you want to go. So I started my blog. I remember sitting around trying to think about a name and I almost called it Bake in Black, like a ACDC pun. Oh my God. <laughs> I would have really taken the brand in a different direction. <laughs> but I had this epiphany because actually, you know, my written voice, my creative writing voice and my speaking voice are very different as anyone who meets me can attest to. And so I was going to do my original blog and sort of my spoken voice, but I found that it alienated certain people because it was a little rough around the edges. Like a lot of that old life was still in there, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And I didn't want to because I remember my mom telling this like sweet, like white haired little old lady, like, oh, my daughter has this food blog. You should read it. And I was thinking (laughs) if I wrote like that, I'd be like, no, don't tell grandma to read it. (laughs) And I wanted grandma to be able to read it. I wanted my mom to be comfortable reading it. My now mother-in-law, you know, I may say some things that they're kind of like, ooh, but I wanted to be able to share my passion for food and living and creativity without sort of relegating it to people who could only relate to that voice. And I also wanted to give myself a creative outlet. I've always written. And I knew that this blog wouldn't be about writing, but that I wanted to try to keep working that muscle so it wouldn't atrophy. Like for me, like writing and blogging aren't exactly the same thing. Like if I was going to go write, you know, a lyric essay or a poem, that's a much longer process than a blog post. But I was just kind of trying to bring that in because I didn't want to lose it. And that's kind of how the brand was born. And I was thinking, I was trying to think of a name. I knew like I kind of need a name. And obviously, I was really into the local farmer's markets. I found a lot of joy and purpose in cooking seasonally and locally. And cooking for me in general was an obvious choice for the sort of niche to start in because it was the one thing I kept doing to the bitter end. Mm -hmm. Even when I was out there in California and like, you know, I was sort of just on the road to dying at that point. At one point, my brother even said to my parents, like, I wish she'd go ahead and die just so we don't have to go through the pain of watching her do it slowly. I mean, and he meant that in a good way. (laughs) It was like, this is so excruciatingly painful. And the conclusion seems forgone. Even at that point, you know, I wasn't writing anymore. I wasn't painting. I didn't go out. I didn't dress up all the things that had kind of been my identity for so long were gone. You know, I was a shell. The one thing I still did was cook. When I was out there in California, again, just so depressed after my divorce, it was like the darkest year. I would go to the local Whole Foods and I would just make lists 
I wouldn't even buy them. I would make lists of all the beautiful, cool, because I'm from Tennessee. So I was in San Diego. The grocery stores there have a lot of cool stuff that we don't have here, you know, blue mushrooms and all this stuff. So I would make these lists of all the cool stuff. And then I would go home and just dream up recipes and ideas and things I would make with them. And that was kind of how I passed my time. And I would cook big meals, but I couldn't clean them up. So it's like this kitchen would sit a disaster for two weeks <laughs> and I wouldn't be able to cook again. But it's what I did. So it seemed like, you know, if that's the one thing you can still do when you can't even get up, then that's a pretty good choice of where to put your energies because that's going to be easy. You know, you're going to enjoy it. So I started the blog. I called it Local Milk partially because I just liked the way it sounded. Like it, it had a nice lilt to it. And I just had started getting local milk from my farmer's market. And because it seemed like a good metaphor, like local being present, be where you are. And then milk is sort of that first form of sustenance a lot of us ever know. And it's just a great metaphor for being present and finding sustenance where you are when you're there. So I was like, done, local milk. Okay, start blogging. And I could write, you know, I'm not a terrible writer. You're an amazing writer. You are an amazing writer. Some people on the internet would strongly disagree with you. (laughs) I've gotten some pretty angry emails about my writing. You know, you love it or you hate it. But the point is, I, I could write and I could cook. These are skills I already possessed. But I couldn't take a picture to save my life. I had never touched a camera. Actually, my ex husband was a photographer. And I think when you're like, your person does something, you just like, that's their thing. Mm. Couldn't be my thing. You know, I just never crossed my mind. Also, I hated taking pictures. I thought it took me out of the moment. So I wasn't someone who took pictures of vacations or anything like that. I just had no motive. But I quickly, through my powers of observation, realized that all the successful blogs in my niche had good photos. It was like a no-brainer, you know? So I was like, well, I guess I should learn how to do this. And my dad gave me, it was a hand-me-down. It was his first-generation Canon Rebel with kit lens on it. And I was like, wow, upgrade. And I just started learning to use it. And I'm really technical and really obsessive by nature. So photography was actually a really good fit for me. And I couldn't – in a way, to me, it's a lot like cooking because you never stop learning about it. It's not like you reach the end, you know? (laughs) So, and it's also technical because actually what I like about cooking, I like the technical aspect, I like the science of it. So it ended up being a strong suit that I never knew I would have. So I taught myself photography, slowly upgrading things. I mean, I didn't have any money. So it would be any holiday that would come around. I'd be like, dear everyone, don't get me anything, but just can I get this camera lens or something (laughs) to like slowly, slowly add And then I bought a little film camera on Craigslist because I thought, you know, I don't want to rely on a machine that can kind of fix my mistakes or cover up that I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm just going to go to this purely mechanical thing. And once I can learn to take good pictures on this, then I'll consider upgrading my digital camera. So I really taught myself with film, which I think was really beneficial. I was able to learn just those basic principles of photography. So taught myself photography. And then slowly, my work got better. And then more people came. And then all of a sudden, I got jobs. And then I had to learn a new skill, which was business. <laughs> because I woke up one morning with a brand and a business. It kind of just like thrown it at me. Like I didn't know what to do with it. I hadn't really 
planned for my success and like learned everything about it beforehand. I really actually is Heidi Swanson. I was talking to her the other day and she used the phrase embracing the public learning curve, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I really like. So I just embraced the public learning curve. I learned as I went, I used the internet as my resource to learn. I'd be on Twitter talking to other bloggers about their camera lenses and their frosting recipes. You know, it was a great, it was on Twitter. I think at the time was really where a lot of the conversations were happening And it was great. It was a community. I was a part of something. I had purpose. And I really looked at it. I Since I never really did the college thing, I thought, you know, I'm going to treat this blogging thing like college. I'm going to give myself four years. And at the end of four years, I feel like, you know, I should be able to earn and have a living and a job. And it worked. And I would say I was making a decent living within two. But really, it was until years three and four and five and six. So I would say three is when I started making a living and then it just went up from there. But it took time. I think I got paid $20 for my first photograph. (laughs) And I was like, yes. (laughs) Or someone would pay me like 50 bucks to bake like 200 hand pies. I'd be like, amazing. And I think I see a lot of my readers and, you know, followers get really discouraged. And I think, why wasn't I discouraged? And I realized it's because my life was so bad. (laughs) Like everything was so uphill for me. Like one like on a photo, you know, $50 for 200 pies. I mean, this was, you know, for me, I felt like I was just conquering the world with every little win. And that really helped me not get discouraged. But I was talking to my husband about it. I was like, what's wrong with me? He's like, you don't look down. Mm -hmm. I never looked down. I never thought, oh, there's so many people out there. Oh, I'm so bad. I don't know what I'm doing. Or, oh, how could someone like me, you know, with a history of mental illness and addiction and still will have to contend with that my whole life? How, you know, I just don't think about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you can't get scared. I really do think it's like walking a tightrope. You just don't look down. But yes, that is the very long, circuitous way I got to where I am. And, you know, Once I built all of that and I felt like I really came into my own as a person, I found my purpose, you know, and when I found that, I don't think that it happens this way for everyone. But for me, that was when I was the person I needed to be to find my husband. If we'd met sooner, he would not have had anything to do with me. (laughs) He'd been like, "Uh uh-uh, no. He might have tried to save me. He might have tried. But... Yeah. And we met and then, you know, we have such shared passions. It was like the whole world sort of just opened up and now we have this family and we just live this lifestyle together because we're both so similar in the way that we like to live, which is kind of crazily, actually. We're two entrepreneurs who love to be nomadic, which you can imagine the chaos. (laughs) With kids. uh, (laughs) Yeah. With kids. We're like, whatever, let's do it. But yeah, that is the long story of how I got here. Let's be honest, we all have this love-hate relationship with Instagram. We find ourselves scrolling, we're hashtagging our way into oblivion, trying to crack the code on how to get more followers, and we're straight up exhausted from the rat race. I get it. That is why I want to help you. This show is made possible with the help of my totally free Insta resources to help you write captions that convert, to use hashtags that actually connect you to your dream clients, and so much more. 
hop on over to jkinsta.com and get your hands on my resources created with you in mind. That's right. It's free 99 and it is waiting for you over at jkinsta.com. Go dig on in and I'll see you over on the gram. I love it. And I think that what's so interesting is that People probably would never guess it if they just looked at your beautiful feed. And what drew me in was your images. But once I really started looking deeper and reading your words, and you guys, you have to check out Best About Me page. It is literally the best written about me page I've ever read in my life. So what has been the evolution from when you started to where you're at right now? What has that process looked like? Has it always been so beautiful or how have you kind of transitioned throughout the years? So like I said, I hadn't even touched a camera when I started. So was it always beautiful? No, (laughs) no, it was not. And a lot of that content is still on my blog. It's like people who want to go back and find it, they can. I don't know if it'll always be there, but right now it is because it was there for the recipe. So I was like, well, the recipe is still good. But no, I embraced the public learning curve and I just slowly got better. I think I can look at my work now. I can look back and I can see moments when things clicked. Like, you know, there's a massive shift in the photographs and then there's another shift and that continues to happen to me. You know, I recently, I think, had some editing epiphanies <laughs> but and your style changes too. you change. And I think the one thing I, I knew maybe consciously or maybe just intuitively in the beginning was I wanted a brand that could change with me that could just kind of come along for the ride that was my life and my passions and That's really been the case. Fortunately, when I picked food and cooking as sort of the center and heart and of my brand, that's abided. It's just something that I'm so passionate about and I enjoy so much. Whenever people are trying to figure out what to do with their life, I'm like, well, what do you do when you should be doing other things? (laughs) And for me, that was cooking. It was my favorite way to procrastinate or just, you know, do something I enjoyed So for me, the cooking has stayed as the heart of the blog, but I think I'm a very, very much like a web thinker. I Mm -hmm. see everything as being very connected in life. And I think not to make any sort of stereotype, I think a lot of women are web thinkers. And I I know like my husband is a very like compartment thinker. (laughs) Like it's like the lunch trays and the foods do not touch. (laughs) (laughs) But because of that, I started to see, you know, when I think of, Food travel was a really natural like growth of the brand from food because I think food and travel are so intimately connected. And I think food is amazing because it is a way you can travel. I mean, have a really authentic experience without leaving your house. If you have the right ingredients and the right methods, you know, you can really sip, you know, a miso soup that would taste the same as the miso soup where you sipping it in Kyoto. And I think that that's just one of the coolest things about food. So it grew into travel. That was sort of the first evolution because I always knew I wanted that. Like I said, I saw that other woman doing it and I thought she's traveling and doing food for her like job. I want to do that. So travel, I added it in very intentionally, I think about one or two years in. And then after that, you know, photography became a passion. And while my blog has never been about photography, the retreats always were, which is interesting because I never brought it online, but I've been teaching photography for years now. 
And then slowly, again, the next thing I had to learn was business. I actually found, and it makes sense. My mom is actually an amazingly talented businesswoman. She worked for IBM and then she was brought in to help companies that were failing later in life. She would just kind of go in and like whip it into shape. And then for, I guess, the past, I want to say 10, 20 years, she's run my dad's company with him. So I come from a really business family. They're actually in the car business, which is very different. <laughs> my brother went into the car business. I'm the only one who is not going into the car business. But yeah, so that language was always there. And once I started to think about business, I got super, super passionate about business and marketing specifically. I think as a visual, verbal person and a very relational person, that was a natural place for me. Like bookkeeping, not my jam. <laughs> really bad at I don't that. Know. It's not many people's jam. No. <laughs> and I'm just like, they're gold. The people who it is their jam, yes. they are pure gold. And we all need them very, very much. But yeah, so I've just sort of grown and let the blog and the brand itself just sort of follow where I'm going. You know, I, when my daughter was born, I was sort of open like, well, you know, do I want to blog about motherhood? Am I going to become a mom blogger? And I knew I could if I wanted to. And I do talk about motherhood a lot, but I, I don't think I found I wasn't that passionate about mom blogging. <laughs> you know, I didn't really have a lot to say about it. I was like, I don't know. I just mom, I mom her <laughs> the way that I feel I should. But, you know, I think that it's cool when you leave it open and know that you can change if you want to change. And I think that's what's helped me be so focused is at any moment I have permission from myself to switch. And that mm. alone makes me not panic because it's like every dream I have, even the ones that are like crazy, like I love scuba diving and I've always wanted to photograph sharks. And I'm like, this is not really the shark photography time of my life, but shark photography just sits on the shelf. And I know any day I want I can take it off the shelf and start working on it, but that I need to put another box back up because I know I only have so much bandwidth and so much energy and time. So it doesn't mean I'm never going to live my dreams. It's just I do kind of one dream at a time. <laughs> I love that. I think that's so powerful too because I think so many times people are multi-passionate. I mean, we're human beings. It would be it would be impossible to not be. And I think people can get frustrated with that. But I feel like the people that make progress in that, you put your head down and you work on one passion and you get really good at it and you get it so it doesn't feel like as much work. And then you can continue to move on. But you have to give yourself that time and space. And I think, you know, balance is something that we're all chasing, but it doesn't exist because you're always putting your energy towards something and that lack of energy going towards something else. So, one thing that I, I love about you and what I'm excited to pick your brain on is the process of curation. And what I felt lately in interviews and hearing from people is this frustration with Instagram and curated lives and, you know, this push towards authentic. But I think that as visual storytellers, curation is so important. And we're all doing it, whether we recognize it or not, whether we're picking the prettiest photo or the skinniest photo of us or whatever that looks like. And so can you kind of explain your process of curation and, and how you've almost systemized it in your business? Because your feed is absolutely beautiful. And I think that sometimes that's what it takes to draw people in to share more of the passion. 
Yeah, I definitely look at Instagram as kind of a bait and switch. <laughs> like, first, I got to make you look because Instagram yeah. is for looking. That's why we're mm-hmm. on Instagram. It's a visual photo platform for scrolling and looking at pictures and tap tapping if you like the picture. And, you know, you have a certain percentage of people who are going to stop and read or a certain, you know, period or a certain percentage of people that if they like what they see, maybe they'll stop and read. But I know that the number one way on Instagram I'm going to get someone's attention is beautiful photos. So for me, consistency is key and it's consistency in everything. So in my aesthetic And that would be sort of the style I have, the types of things I shoot, the types of interiors, the types of fashion, the types of food, props, you know, what I choose to shoot. So I like my style to be consistent. I like my editing style to be consistent. Although if I want to change it, I just like to just slowly phase into the next thing and then be consistent again and do kind of all of my experimenting behind closed doors, basically, until I've settled on something if I do want to change. So editing consistent, style consistent, color consistent is huge. And you hear a lot of people talk about sort of choosing color story or, you know, a theme for your Instagram. Mine is very intentional. Mine is gray and pink Mm -hmm. with blue and green accents. And then black and white are sort of just a baseline because they're black and white. But yeah, Mm -hmm. gray and pink are kind of my big colors. And I always edit the other thing. And there's color and then there's temperature. So you'll find that feeds that are, I would find successful visual feeds, not celebrity feeds. You, but this person has a million followers and their photos are terrible. (laughs) I'm like, that's because they're a pop star. Um, That doesn't apply to us. (laughs) But I think that you'll notice they're either warm or cool. Mm -hmm. My feed is a cool feed and cool in temperature. So it's on more on the blue side, essentially. And then, you know, you have warmer feeds, which are going to be more on the yellow side. Although I think if you told anyone with a warmer, cool feed that their photos were blue or yellow, they'd be like, "Uh -uh. (laughs) (laughs) they're cool. They're not blue. They're blue. I'm doing it wrong sometimes. Yeah. So I think color temperature, color theme, style, just like prop style, lifestyle, and then editing style, the consistency there Mm -hmm. is the thing that will make it pop. So when I'm, you know, basically choosing a photo, whether it's choosing to take the photo in the first place or choosing actually from my photos, what to put on there, I'm looking for color. I'm looking for light and I'm looking for emotion. And that's Mm -hmm. the big one. And by emotion, I'm, I don't mean like necessarily happy or sad, but that too, if it's going to make somebody feel something, but I'm mostly looking for, wow, I want someone to be like, wow, I want to make that or wow, I Mm want to go there or, you know, wow, I want to wear that, whatever it is, I want it to be like the best of the best. I want it to be arrestingly something, (laughs) but most of all, arrestingly beautiful. So none of my detail shots, none of my B-roll, none of my storytelling photos, I guess I would say, are going to make it as that lead photo on Instagram. Now, I might do the swipe thing and put some detail shots after that cover photo, but that cover photo is always going to be a really wowing, consistent, establishing shot. I don't know why, but Instagram really like doesn't dig on detail shots. <laughs> and I think it's because there's no context and it takes too long to figure out what's happening because Instagram is a very fast platform. Yes. So my question then is, does 
the way that you curate with all of the things that you mentioned, does that make you ever feel stuck or do you feel empowered in your system? I kind of like what I like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So for me, it's really nice because I, maybe it's because I'm older. I mean, I'm, I'm mid thirties now when I was younger, like early twenties, like I just, especially like fashion was a big thing for me. And there were so many, I had a different style every day or three times a day. You know, I was in that creative process of trying on lots of different things, but now that I'm older and boring, like I like what I like. And I know if it's me within a split second of looking at it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I, I enjoy that because it takes away a lot of the noise in my life. My life is a lot simpler because I have an aesthetic. I can appreciate other aesthetics. It's just kind of like that dress looks good on you, but I just, I don't like it on me. <laughs> that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So I love other people's aesthetics and I love, I love seeing variety. Actually, the aesthetics I like the least are the ones that remind me the most of myself. And it's not <laughs> because I feel like, you know, we're too similar. Or they're copying me. It's not that. It's just not as inspiring. Most of the people I follow do things really differently for me. Like I love minimalist feeds or like really graphic or colorful or warmer ones. But yeah, I just like the variety. But I just know for me, I only feel comfortable when my photos are wearing a certain dress. So that took time. It took time to figure out who I was. And in the beginning, I did have to try on different things. So it's not an overnight sort of thing. But no, I don't find it stifling. I do think that people who are aspiring in the sort of lifestyle category, especially if they want to be like a lifestyle influencer. I warn them to be careful what you wish for. I think some of us got into that and then like slowly wanted to back away. Like, okay, (laughs) I'm just going to back out of this room because you do start to feel intense pressure to make everything beautiful and, you know, to have every moment look a certain way. And I went through, I think, a phase of feeling that way and feeling really frustrated by it. And then I sort of grew out of it by separating like shoot time from living time. Mm. Yep. So I kind of know if I'm going to shoot or not. And if I'm going to shoot, it's kind of a photo shoot, you know? Mm. And if I'm not baby can run around in her diaper. I mean, I don't, Uh, there's a reason I don't do my face on uh, Instagram (laughs) stories very much because my hair and face are like my lowest priority in the whole world right now. So, but if I'm going to be on camera, then I'm going to, you know, take the time to blow dry the bangs. But now I don't have to feel like every moment has to be pretty. Just when I'm shooting, I like it to be styled and the way I get over the feeling of like, oh, but life is messier. And I'm like, I'm not sharing. People get confused about this, but I'm not sharing my life on social media. I'm sharing my work. Mm-hmm. My work is part of my life, especially with a lifestyle brand. But the truth is there's actually a big difference between Beth and local milk. Mm-hmm. They're very intimately intertwined. But at the end of the day, in my mind, at least, and for me, that's all that really matters. What goes where is really clear, like what is personal versus what is private and personal. I'm happy to share 
personal as anything I think that you feel happy to share. So it is going to vary wildly between people. Like I always tell when I'm teaching at retreats, for me, you know, I can talk about my history of drug addiction and bipolar and not actually feel that that's a struggle because I overcame it and because Mm -hmm. I am inspired by it and I want to let other people know that it's okay. But people ask me what happened to my cats all the time. And I'm like, just don't (laughs) ask because we had to give them to my friend's sister because we travel too much. And that breaks my heart. That makes me so sad that I can't even talk about it. So I ignore the question on social media. I will not broach it. I'm like, that's private. Um, And they're like, but you put your whole life here. Nothing's right. I'm like, nope, it is completely arbitrary. And it is up to me what's personal and what's private. Although I just shared it now. So if anyone was wondering if my cats were dead, (laughs) no, they're in a very loving home down the street. I get to see them all the time. But yeah, we it wasn't the right decision. And we had to make the hard choice and give them a place where the people would be around. But yeah, mm-hmm. that to me is the difference between those two things. I love it. And I know for me, like curating gives me like releases stress because it gives me a system. And for things that I could get too emotional about having a system helps remove that emotion where it is at the end of the day marketing. And I think that there's so many different ways you can approach it. And I think that there's so many different ways that people can, you know, enjoy it. But whenever people talk about that frustration, something tells me that it's deeper than just selecting images for a feed. And I've just always separated my work and my emotion because if I get emotional about my work, in a sense, I'm not thinking like a business. And so I think everyone's different and that's the beauty. So one of the things that I would love for you to pass on your knowledge before we wrap up is what are three simple tips for our listeners to learn how to style better. Your styling skills are literally out of this world. And so do you have any little tips on how to style a beautiful image better? Yes, I do. (laughs) So a lot of people don't actually think about the props and how that's such a huge part of styling. I think that for me, the thing that made the biggest difference in the beginning was curating. (laughs) There's that word again, Mm -hmm. collecting, assembling, curating a small but excellent prop collection and at least one amazing background. So that could be like a tabletop or just a wooden board or a marble slab. I have all sorts of stuff. I have big metal sheets, plaster, drywall. That's a really affordable thing you can do. You can plaster up some drywall and use that as a background. You can buy poster board. When I was super, super scraping by, I would just buy a poster board from the Walgreens. And it's like, is it ideal? But it's it's a plain white background and it gets the job done more so than like, you know, I had like the weird granite, like modeled brown, black, gray, terribleness. <laughs> so it was better than that. But props, I think that props are, they're the tools that you're going to work with. So whatever your style is, you want a few objects to use if you're going to style an image. And then I would say the big thing that makes Styling is composition. That's what styling is. It's composing objects in a frame. So you need the objects to be good and then you need to compose them. So when I'm styling, I think about how the human eye is going to read a photograph. So they're going to read it left to right, top to bottom, at least in the West. (laughs) And 
I just want to lead their eye in a way that flows through the frame. So when I'm putting straight lines in a photo, like forks or chopsticks or the edge of a rectangular plate, which I would never use a rectangular plate. (laughs) But the point being, whenever I have hard lines in a photo, I make sure Mm -hmm. they point in the direction I want the eye to go. So I sort of make, and then if I have circles, I kind of play connect the dots with the circles so that things flow through the frame. If I'm styling for like a head on shot, I want my taller objects in the back and then my shorter objects in the front and I'm going to kind of stagger those down building height on one side and trickling down or maybe building height in the middle and going down but I'm always thinking about sort of making the eye flow through the image in a really controlled way so I before I ever start styling I think about the composition like am I going to just maybe arrange some objects in the bottom left hand corner and kind of have them flow from the the top left down to the bottom, you know, and flow through the frame. And I sort of draw a little sketch. And that way I have my composition. I use the rule of thirds, super basic, but I'll just draw a little grid and sketch out where I want things to flow. And that's going to help, you know, control and guide me while I do it. And then the other thing is color, color theory. Like you can grab a color wheel anywhere on the internet. Like say you've got green dish we'll talk food styling and you mm-hmm. want to style that green thing you can look on a color wheel and you can see what its complementary colors are going to be what its tertiary colors going to be i don't know if i said that word right uh, what it's <laughs> i'm going with it tertiary, i don't know <laughs> you can see analogous colors but it's quickly going to give you some good ideas of what to pair with that but At the end of the day, if I have a lot of bright color in my subject, like it's flowers or it's food or even people who are brightly dressed, you know, life has a lot of color. So I keep my propping very neutral because otherwise it just gets really crazy. But similarly, you can use colorful props to brighten up a subject that's maybe drab, like lentils are notoriously a terrible thing to photograph. (laughs) So you're just always thinking about how you can bring that color in and how you can use complementary colors. And also, obviously, I deal in a lot of gray and pink props because those are my main colors for my brand and my feed. So yeah, it's props, composition, and color. If you are really mindful about those three things – And I'll throw in a fourth negative space. Include some negative space. (laughs) You'll have – I think that that would up people's game if they actually just thought about the objects as flowing through the frame and thought about the colors and the props like really intentionally. I love it. Are you ready for rapid fire? Yeah, sure. Okay. Are you ready for real? (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't like the most enthusiastic yes, was it? Yeah, sure. Yes. You're like uh, trepidation. Okay. If you had to pick your absolute favorite thing about creating content for local milk, what would it be? Coming up with ideas. I'm an idea person. Love it. What is your least favorite thing about image and content curation for your work? uploading stuff oh yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh my gosh if you had to pick three words to describe your brand what would they be three words to describe my brand oh that one's really hard it's a tough one I know you would think it would be easy because I've written about my brand so much I would say intentional and for me beauty I mean beauty is a huge value of the brand of the business being intentional 
valuing beauty and for me, like abundance, the brand is really about creating that. I love it. And so since you're on Gold Digger, what is your biggest goal for local milk in the new year? Um, this one's hard. It's hard to be succinct because I do know mm-hmm. what it is. For me, I'm writing my book this year. So I yes. want to revolutionize the way people cook at home. I want to to change the way they think about food, not thinking about recipes and then ingredients. I want them to think about ingredients and then recipes. And I want to scale up this business to reach more people. I want to hire people and really watch it grow so that we can talk to more people and have that conversation more. I love it. Guys, I get to hang out with Beth all year, which I'm so excited about. But where can everybody find you? You guys... Please, if you do anything after this show, please go and check out Beth because I was so enamored. I found her on a Friday night and the entire weekend I just spent going through all of the archives. So trust me, it's a good find. Where can everybody do this? So you can find me on Instagram and it's at local underscore milk. You can find me on my blog and that's localmilkblog.com. And you can find things about our retreats and events at localmilkretreats.com. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for sharing your story. I think that we are really striving to open the dialogue about all different kinds of conversations. And I think that talking about mental health is so necessary and so needed. And so just thank you for your openness and for sharing that piece of your life with us. I think it was such a breath of fresh air. So there you have it, guys. Isn't Beth awesome? I know I say that every week, but I feel so lucky to get to pick these incredible women's brains for a job. I mean, it doesn't feel like a job. So I had so many takeaways from Beth's story, but what I think is so wonderful about this platform is that we can use it to talk about things that people are struggling with, like mental illness. And I'm just really, truly thankful that Beth shared her story of what that looked like in her life and those seasons of uncertainty that led her to such clarity. And I think that for a lot of us, we are all struggling. And especially in the creative world, mental illness is really real thing. And so I'm just really filled with gratitude that Beth took the time to walk us through her journey. I also loved how she talked about how she deciphered between what is public and what is private and how we are all in control of our comfort level in what we choose to share and that you can be authentic and still be curated. I think that as artists, it's something that we are always towing the line on. We're not sure if it's black or white or gray. And what I think is so wonderful is that Beth can have this incredibly beautiful feed, but she can make an impact through the words that she shares and the stories that she tells. And so I really took that charge from Beth today to understand that it's okay to be a visual artist and to want to show the beautiful things, but there can always be meaning and stories and emotion behind that. And I loved hearing that. Until next time, gold diggers, keep on digging your biggest goals. Thank you once again for tuning in to another episode of the Gold Digger podcast. And we would love to hear from you. Of course, go check out Beth and her incredible blog. And if you want to let us know what your biggest takeaway was, of course, we're always listening. There is a girl behind the screen who loves to hear from you. Hop on over to at Gold Digger podcast on Instagram, and I will hang out with you there. Thanks for listening to the Gold Digger podcast. 
Dive into the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at www.golddiggerpodcast.com. If you love the show, share it with a friend. The more the merrier. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time, you gold digger you.